You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Stella. How are you? Hi, Sasha. So today we're going to speak about stereotypes. I just looked up actually what is the meaning of the word stereotype. It's a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular person or a particular type or a particular thing. So it's oversimplified and it's fixed. And you know what? It's absolutely um, riddled in the gender world. It's, it seems to be so it just everywhere. And I think for me, one of the pivotal, one of the many pivotal, but one of an early pivotal moment for me learning about gender was when I looked up the DSM and I looked up what is it to get gender dysphoria? Because people were asking me, I was doing the film Tans Kids and people were saying like, did you really have such a weird experience as a kid? Was it really gender dysphoria? And that was the big question that everybody was asking. Was it really gender dysphoria? And so I thought, um, oh, well, I better check out what, what it was. I know I had a very intense experience and I know it wasn't like what most people seem to have. Um, I better check it out. And I did. And when I read the DSM, I was like, but sure, this is all stereotypes. This is all. And that was really a, a, a shock to me. But then as I got more and more deeper into the world of gender, I found stereotypes are everywhere with this. It's what men do, what women do. And then I realized, and you'll tell me more about this, but like queer theory and all that, it became gender was performative. Now, if it's performative, is it therefore based on stereotypes? It, if you follow me, so it was mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Will I will I read out a little bit of the gender dysphoria DSM or not read it out, but synopsize or do you sure, want to come yeah. in on this? Yeah. Okay, go, go yeah. It. This is the bit that really shocked me way back when I was first learning about gender. So I, I was basically genuinely thinking, did I have gender dysphoria? Now, I wanted to say the caveat, gender dysphoria as a condition did not exist when I would have had it, which is like 1980 or whatever, because when I, it was a different, it had a different name, but so did schizophrenia. So I don't even think it's called schizophrenia anymore. So did um, bipolar disorder was called manic depression. All of these, they often change. Conditions change. The name changes. But, you know, the feelings change, stay stay the same. It's just a different diagnosis. For the DSM, the big, the kind of the Bible of psychiatry, that defines gender dysphoria as a marked incongruence between your expressed gender and your assigned gender that lasts six months, at least six months, and it has to manifest at least six of the following. And of these followings, number one is assistance that you're the other gender. Another, here's a stereotype, in boys, a strong preference for cross-dressing or or female clothes, and in girls, a strong preference for wearing masculine clothes. Now, what is masculine clothes and what is feminine clothes? I see that under the banner of stereotype. You can come back. We can come back and you can tell me whether you think it is. Then definitely we're into stereotypes now. A strong preference for cross-gender roles. So playing games of other the, the opposite gender, a strong preference for the toys, games or activities stereotypically used or engaged in by the other gender. 
So the toys, games and activities, they literally say stereotypically used. Strong preference for playmates of the other gender. Uh, a strong rejection of typically masculine toys, games and activities. For example, rough and tumble play. That's for boys. And for girls, a strong rejection of typically feminine toys, games and activities. And then the other, the last two are actually more specific that you would say, but that's six out of the eight and you only need six of the eight to get diagnosed with gender dysphoria and you need that for six months. So basically, if you want to hang out with the boys and you want to play boys games and you like boys, boys clothes, you have gender dysphoria if you have that for longer than six months. The last two would be a strong dislike of your sexual anatomy and a strong desire for the physical sex characteristics of the other gender. But the first six are are kind of startling because they're about toys and clothes and roles and literally rough and tumble play and things like Mm -hmm. that. For me, that's very much based on stereotypes because it's a fixed idea of what what a boy should play and what what a girl should play. What, what do you think? Yeah, you're right, Stella. I mean, what seems important to me is that there there is a requirement for mar- uh, marked incongruence and significant distress. So there needs to be impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. But the traits that you described there, the, the six of eight, um, are really based on stereotypes. And what I find um, curious is that the distress may be because the child recognizes that they don't fit in with their peers or recognizes that they are quite different from the other you know, girls in their class or the other boys in their class. So it's not really clear if the distress is just due to the fact that this child has these preferences or the incongruence between their, quote, preferences and their biological sex, or just the fact that the child perhaps is somewhat different from their peers and has not yet figured out how to kind of synthesize that. So I understand why a lot of people feel quite skeptical about the way this diagnosis is written. And also maybe, we don't know, some of the distress might be being slightly pushed um, subtly or not subtly towards the, um, the the more stereotypical activities that the, the parents might want from them. Certainly we've heard, many of us have heard like, you know, people like Susie Green from Mermaids and she's, you know, the CEO of Mermaids, I think. Certainly she had a child who preferred um, stereotypically feminine activities and clothes. Mm-hmm. And there was definitely a, a significant effort to get this child who was born a biological male to, to play with more male, stereotypically male activities. And I, I, I know that because she said it in a TED talk and she, she was very affectionate about it and stuff. But ultimately, this this person who was born a boy um, wanted to play with the female stuff and be around the female stuff. And this was seen as a suggestion Ultimately, now I'm sure there was many other things that happened and I'm sure there was significant distress, but it was certainly that was what was referenced in the TED talk as the suggestion that this was an indication that somebody could, should transition. And ultimately, um, the child did transition at a young age and um, went to Thailand to have an operation when, when the child was 16. So that it did feel when you listen to the TED talk that there was a lot of stereotyping around what is female activities and what are male activities at the time. I might be wrong and I hope I am, but that's certainly how it looked to me. Now, I wasn't in the household. I don't know. 
but it's certainly something that we'd have to mm-hmm. be aware of, that if somebody came in to me and said the child is behaving in this girlish way or they're born a boy, my my job, I would say, as a psychotherapist to say, well, what does that mean? And why why is why is this behavior? Why are why is pink, for example, considered girlish? And why is blue boyish? And there's so much to kind of unpack around that. It feels very constraining. And I do often say I've probably broken record, but I often say maybe coming out of all this gender in 20 years, there will be a lot. It'll be a lot looser. The gender non-conforming people will be able to run around in, in whatever way they want. You still don't normally see boys in dresses and boys in skirts and things like that. And maybe that will be our liberation one day. Yeah, I mean, I think when I was preparing for this episode, there are so many things that come to my mind because, you know, in the debates around gender, people talk a lot about stereotypes. They they typically frame stereotypes as being toxic and unhelpful. And in the case of, you know, parents who have a gender nonconforming child, I would say I agree completely that we need to be very careful about how we understand a non-conforming child and whether or not applying a stereotype to them is valuable. And I think in the case of a very feminine boy, let's say, or a really masculine little girl, we need to really give them space to develop as they as they are, whatever that means, without confining them to the stereotypes of girls have to do this or boys have to do that. Um, so I wonder, you know, I was thinking about as we do this podcast, maybe we can talk a little bit about, are there particular stereotypes about women that you find frustrate you or annoy you or, or maybe stereotypes about, you know, Irish people or people of your socioeconomic status? Like we all fall into lots of categories. So do you, do you have any stereotypes yeah. that really grind your you gears? Know what? Yeah, yes, many, many. Get a chair. <laughs> Sit back. I'm already sitting, Stella. <laughs> um, What I would like to preface this with is something that you said, which is, you know, stereotypes is what we do to categorize life because it's it's a quick way to go through life. That's what we do. We're categorizing, we're classifying all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, look, she's good looking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's one of those loud types. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, She's ultra feminine. And that, uh, that there's a lot of baggage with that phrase. She's ultra feminine. So, yeah, I, I think we need them. And I think they come from a place. I know I just read the book um, Testosterone by Carol Hooven. And, you know, when you read that and you realize how much testosterone impacts and you realize how much testosterone little boys get, even in the womb, let alone in the first few years. And there's a direct link, for example, with rough and tumble play and boys because of testosterone. And then you think, oh, wow. Because look at that. Rough and tumble play is in the DSM. Rough and tumble Mm. play is very definitely associated with uh, masculine behavior in boys. And it's very, they they literally have traced it towards testosterone, like I'm talking about in animals and chimps, they're rough and tumble and play. And it's funny because I've always considered myself masculine and I am in lots of different ways, but I hate rough and tumble play. I hate it. I hate it with a passion. So I do have some typically feminine types and that is one of them but what stereotypes to get back to your question because that was a very long segue (laughs) and what stereotypes do I not like or do I like I quite like them I think they're I don't really for example I consider myself typically Irish I'm talkative 
and I'm uh, what's the word? I, 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 you know, rebellious, you know, typical Irish rebel, you know what I mean? And um, probably flippant and certainly fun loving. I, I would have considered that that's all very Irish and I'm very, very comfortable with my Irish kind of stereotypes. Mm-hmm. I do like a drink for everybody who's thinking. What about, <laughs> Does she what drink? About... <laughs> <laughs> Are you totally drunk right now, Stella? I think no. is what everyone's... No, <laughs> no I'm just in, kidding. In Ireland, what we say is, do you take a drink? And do you take a drink? Okay. Like if, I, if somebody takes a drink, that means they take a lot of drink. Okay. <laughs> so I take what a about... drink. What about stereotypes about women? I mean, it seems like you embrace all the Irish stereotypes. Yeah, it doesn't bother me at all. Yeah. Okay. What about stereotypes about women? Yeah, you know, I'm in little, I'm dying to get over it to you now in a minute, but I feel a little bit in tricky ground around I, uh, uh, women's stereotypes because I think a lot of them are true. And I worked a lot with women in the last few years, more so than I've ever done it before, solely with women. And um, I, I've been a little bit crestfallen with the way women work as a result and mm. I have found that we can be I do think it's true that we seek consensus in as women I do think it's true that we're less likely to be decisive because we are seeking consensus I do think that we have an empathy which I, I think is a stereotype and I think it's true there's a gentleness to us I do think our anger and I, I was very interested when I read about testosterone that testosterone driven anger is different than estrogen driven anger as such and our anger is different it does come across different I I I fall in with all of those stereotypes to do with women I say yeah I, I think they are. And therefore, I do think we can suddenly, certainly, if we're in a large group of women, we can talk around the houses. I'm in, you know, a group WhatsApp with the school and trying to decide on the present to get for the teacher. Like, you know, it's just mm-hmm. rambling on, like, you know what I mean? And then the man comes and he makes a decision and annoys all the women. But you think, OK, stereotypes all over the place is happening here. Mm-hmm. And it came from somewhere. So I am aware people mightn't like everything I've just said and say, how dare she? I'm very blah, blah, blah. But sure, yeah, isn't that the thing? There's always going to be exceptions that prove the rule. Yeah. But you've also picked out a bunch of really positive stereotypes. I mean, that women are empathetic and that women are, you know, thoughtful about making decisions. So you've picked out all the good ones. Well, well so I, I, guess <laughs> I framed it very positively. <laughs> On another yeah. level, you can be with a group of women and you could say, nobody's making a decision here. And this is my masculine side because I'll say, mm. oh, I'll just make the decision. I, I don't care. Mm. I don't mm-hmm. care about the consensus mm-hmm. and I don't actually care about being liked as much. And that's what they have seen. I know in the personality traits, you know, the big five and all that. Women are much more likely to, to be agreeable, much again, seeking consensus. Yes. yes. And men are yes. much more likely to be comfortable with being disagreeable, which means basically they won't be falling in. I am definitely disagreeable. <laughs> I'm definitely, <laughs> definitely, I I. I lean to the masculine there so I think it's true I think women groups of women can ramble on a lot and not make a decision just to reframe what the the positive version of what I said we can talk a lot and not make a decision and become quite angry in a complicated way with somebody who does make a decision because consensus Mm. hasn't been reached and Mm. therefore it's all a little bit rushed and really this should be slowed down so that we can get consensus and that frustrates me Mm. and I can see I can see how people kind of say we need a man here now 
give me a group of men and I think we need a mm. woman here. You know what I mean? So both. For sure. Yeah. You're talking about stereotypes which you find on average to be true that frustrate you. I'm talking yeah. about stereotypes that people have applied to you without knowing you that annoy you. So I'll give you an example okay. of what I mean. So um, I was trying to kind of think back. I mean, of course, there are millions of examples of this, but one that really stood out to me is when I used to live in Houston, there was a time when I was really a big runner. And I used to go to this park that was a well-known park and people kind of run laps there. And anyway, um, around this time, I, I had booked myself a massage because I was sore and tired or whatever. So I go to this appointment. I had never seen this particular massage person before. And so in a very vulnerable and awkward way, because I'm on a massage table, you know, getting massaged with like barely any clothing on. And so she says to me, hey, do you run at Memorial Park? And I said, yeah, I do. And she said, do you usually go between so-and-so hours? And I said, yes, that's exactly when I go. And she said, oh, yeah, I've seen you there before. And I said, oh, okay, cool, you know, thinking not, not much of it. And she said, you know, you ran by me, and I thought to myself, you were either going to be really stupid or a bitch. And I said, oh. <laughs> and, she, and she followed up by saying, you actually turned out to be really nice. It's nice to chat with you, because this was like, you know, deep into <laughs> you the didn't. massage. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, well, this is unexpected, you know, and this is an example that came to my mind of wow. somebody can see you just in a snap judgment, make all kinds of assumptions and do you about know, you. Do you have a thought? Because I would say without a doubt, you're pretty. And so she said, stupid or a bitch. That's that's what she thought. That, that, to me, I, that I was guess. quite evidently where she went. Yeah. And at the time, I mean, I was I was in a good shape. I was strong. I felt good. I was athletic. So, wow. you know, it, it could be that. But that really struck me. And, you know, whether that's a pure stereotype or whether that's an expression of maybe something that was going on for her or her own insecurities or where, wherever she happened to be in life, I do think that there can be a stereotype about women who are feminine, for example, that they're kind of dumb. I mean, that's yeah. a stereotype. And I, I think that's really common. And what comes to my mind is, you know, Helena, the, the detransitioner, who's just really brilliant and talks about her experiences on Twitter, she posted something about this. I saw that. And she, she posted about, oh gosh, I wish I had the tweet pulled up because I, I hope I don't butcher it. But essentially that... Um, sometimes, you know, if you are a gender dysphoric kid and you're a teenager and you're feeling insecure and you start reading about how, to how toxic stereotypes are and you happen to actually be the stereotype, then you can turn against yourself. And so I know that within the rhetoric of a lot of gender identity stuff going on online, stereotypes are always framed as harmful and toxic and if it's, let's say it's a stereotype that girls like makeup and they, um, you know, enjoy spending a lot of time on their clothes or their hair, and that's considered a harmful stereotype, what do you do if you're 13, 14, 15, and you really, really like that stuff? Yeah. How do you kind of make sense of that? And I think yeah. it's tricky because we, on one hand... I think about all of the gender non-conforming kids and how harmful it is when we impose stereotypes on them. And then on the other end of that, I think about kids who do kind of happen to fall into the stereotype and how do they accept themselves if that's now being framed as something toxic or harmful.
and boring and conventional and right. you know unlikable mm-hmm. yeah i yeah yeah i think it's very very true i think you know be, be, being pretty ha- carries its own burden and um i i do think it's very hard to to manage it if you follow me because you kind of have to say, well, I'm pretty, but I'm actually clever or I'm pretty, but I'm actually quite nice. Mm-hmm. And you're kind of fighting against the grain. I can imagine a lot of pretty people just giving up saying, I oh, know it's, you know, just, do you know what I mean? I, I'm just going to yeah. n- not proclaim that side of or me. that or that you're a snob. I mean, I, I've heard that before, too. Like if you if you're a woman and you carry yourself with confidence mm. and you're not cowering in a corner, people might think that you're unapproachable or really arrogant or something like that. So there's a lot of ways that this can show up. But just but like all I mean, stereotypes, that comes from somewhere because I know, you know, like I'm, I'm, you know, I'm 46 now, so my my fabulous days are over. But I remember when I was young. Oh, you're still fabulous. Oh, I'm Bella. still gorgeous. You oh, are. I turn heads every day. <laughs> but I remember when I was in my 20s. Um, you know, I because of different work I did, I'd often be outside on the street, and you had to have a certain stance, or else too many people would be coming up leering yes. at you leering yes. at you that's the only way you know what I mean and so you had to have quite a a strong cross face that was kind of mm, don't don't come near me we and have I, a name for that did you know that resting bitch face yeah resting but before <laughs> before there was such a thing you have to have it you just had to pull that face when you were just standing there or you'd get an awful lot of attention and um I remember I was standing outside my own house there the other day and um I, I I realized there's a freedom to being older. You could just stand there smiling, relaxed. There's, there was no feeling of have to put my mask on. Mm-hmm. Do, do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Mm-hmm. That I, I'm kind of freed from that. And I, I think that lingered for a long, long, long time with me. And I know why. I can see why. You just didn't want people coming up, hassling you. And, uh, you'd get mm-hmm. all this. Mm-hmm. And so the stereotype of the bitch who's good looking, who, who's, and I'm not saying I was that good looking, but. I had my allure. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you were a knockout Stella. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, isn't it? Isn't it interesting? They come from somewhere. These stereotypes. Yes, they really yes. do. Yes. And they 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 can become a prison. But they're also. I find they're generally just like the rough and tumble. There was a truth in them in the first place. And well, isn't that how the human psyche works? We're categorizing all the time. So that person says, I'm dying to hear though, what are the question that you didn't ask me, but I answered? What are the stereotypes attributed to you? I know you're from originally from Egypt and oh, I'm sure there's loads of stereotypes mm-hmm. that are attributed mm-hmm. to kind of you and your ways. My ways. Um, <laughs> well, gosh, there's a lot. I mean, a lot of people assume that Egyptians are Muslim, which, again, it's not a harmful stereotype. It's statistically accurate. But my family comes from um, like a minority group of Christians that live in Egypt. So um, I'm not particularly religious, but, you know, we went to church every now and then as kids. Um, so that's one stereotype that comes up. And people perhaps assume that. You know, my family was very restrictive or really, um, you know, 
strict and didn't let me do certain things or, you know, especially even when I meet other Egyptians, funny enough, they assume that we all had a similar childhood experience. But really, my parents were quite liberal. And I don't know if I've shared this, but they didn't know where I was half the time in high school. I was <laughs> really oh, just a very kind I of wild presumed, kid. Yeah, yeah I no, so not at all. Yeah. yeah. And um, you were like the, an, an immigrant. Is that right? And is there loads of stereotypes around that? Well, my parents were immigrants, so I'm a first-generation kid, so my sister and I were the first people in our family to be born outside of Egypt, and my parents left pretty young. My mom was in her teens, and my dad was in his early 20s, so my parents are immigrants, and definitely there are assumptions that people make about about that experience. Um, you know, sometimes people assume that you know everything there is to know about Egyptian politics or the news or what's happening there now, and really we're quite disconnected. Um, so whether that's a, a stereotype or not, it's hard to say. I think, you know, something I'd, I'd love to tie in here is that um, norms themselves are imposed on all of us. And, and in America, we're so, I mean, I find, I feel like we're very fortunate in the, in the America and in the Western cultures that a lot of our norms have been questioned and there is room to diverge from the norm without having a huge social consequence. Whereas in the, you know, my culture of origin, had I grown up in Egypt, for example, the norms imposed on people are much, much more restrictive. And so, you know, stereotypes also have a relationship with norms in a way, too. They, they describe a general pattern that we expect to see from certain people. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I'm curious for you, do you feel like it, norms in Ireland are rigidly imposed on people or is there f as much flexibility as you imagine maybe in the US and and I mean ironically this whole gender identity thing feels like a reinforcement of old norms so it I does. think it's a weird yeah. place to be just as we question everything and we expand all these definitions gender is kind of go going in this backwards place but I wonder what it's like in, in Ireland yeah you know um like for all my life, I would have grown up in America was, you know, the progressive place and America was where they were breaking all the boundaries. But no, I, I wouldn't say so now. I would say in Ireland, we'd have more, more, a freer way to be. And there's something about since I've started working with a lot of American people, there's something incredibly categorical about people. They're trying to categorize you very quickly. Oh, that's what you think. Oh, right. I get you. And it's like, what? Sorry. What? You stop boxing me, please. You're putting me in boxes here. And um, the, the extraordinary um, division and polarization in America between um, is it Democrat and Republican or is it yes, left wing and yes. right wing? Oh, my God. Yeah, mm -hmm. that, it's that's really phenomenal. Bad. It's literally what you read, almost how you stand like it's unbelievable. And it's it's so it feels so, so specific and constricting. I think I would find it very, very um, imprisoning if I lived. I know of a few clients in America and they're telling me different things about their life. And I'm like, wow, it's mm -hmm. so imprisoning how mm -hmm. to live like that. If you mm -hmm. buy this car, you're suggesting who you mm -hmm. are. And if you wear these yeah. clothes and if you do right. this. So, no, I would say we're a lot freer. I, I would say we're a lot freer in Ireland. We're kind of well known in Ireland to have a lot of social mobility. 
because in mm-hmm. a way we were we were oppressed by the English for 800 years mm-hmm. we were all, we were all bunched together so rich yeah. and poor I would say it, there's a lot of movement there's a lot of Marian there isn't massive you know there's a lot of social mobility people go yeah, up and people go great. down yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it is and, and there here, is there just, just before I finish there mm-hmm. is very much there's a long long tradition of the very strong matriarchal figure and, you know, there's a huge amount of alcoholism in Ireland and very often, stereotypically, the man was the alcoholic and the woman was the strong matriarch keeping the family together. Mm-hmm. And that has been very true for Irish history. Very, very, very true. That strong mother figure, it's way overdone. Done. Mother Ireland, the sacrificial mm. mother, it's done to death. And it's very, very true to this day, like friends of mine would be sacrificial mothers. So it's a huge stereotype and it's very strong in Ireland. And it's it's unfortunate because I think a lot of women get lumped with this. We're tough and we're strong and we, we sacrifice. We're the women. We're the women. Who mm-hmm, so it's, mm-hmm. it's kind of it's a sad legacy. I was just thinking about the way you talked about our polarization here politically. And I think we're at a time when people stereotype the other side with a vengeance. I mean, the stereotypes that Republicans believe about Democrats and the the stereotypes Democrats believe about Republicans. And I think this is even more so true for conservative versus progressive. I mean, these are kind of different sets of worldviews and different sets of ideals. And these stereotypes are really rigidly held. And of course, we we try to use confirmation bias to, uh, you know, agree with our own stereotypes. But I, I want to talk a little bit about something you said earlier, which is that stereotypes are a shortcut that our brain uses. And the name for this is a heuristic. Heuristics are strategic shortcuts that are used to try and make sense of a huge amount of information in a quick, quick decision kind of way. And we have to do that. So for example, you know, if you, Gosh, I want to try to find one that is not going to be like offensive to a lot of people. Okay, here's one. Let's say the doorbell rings and I'm not expecting a maintenance person and someone shows up wearing a maintenance uniform with like the logo of the company they work for. It says so-and-so plumbing. And they say, hey, I'm here to check out the pipes. The apartment building has a leak. You know, I have to quickly assess whether or not that makes sense. That's a stereotype. You know, this person is in a uniform. They're wearing whatever you would expect. They gave an explanation and they look generally like a worker. I mean, if someone showed up wearing like a ball gown with sequins on it and she said she was there to fix my plumbing, I might question whether that's true. So so our brains do this and it's a very natural thing. And I found a fascinating article that I'd like to include in the show notes. And if you'll indulge me, I just want to read a few chunks from it. And the article is called Stereotype Accuracy, A Displeasing Truth. So the beginning of the article, he goes on to explain how stereotypes can be used in a very harmful manner to divide people, to, um, you know, ostracize people, even in cases of horrible things like genocide or discrimination, stereotypes can be really harmful. But then he goes on to explain that there's a biological wiring of why we do this. So here he says, 
First, stereotypes are not bugs in our cultural software, but they're features in our biological hardware. This is because the ability to stereotype is often essential for efficient decision-making, which facilitates survival. As Yale psychologist Paul Bloom has noted, you don't ask a toddler for directions. You don't ask a very old person to help you move your sofa. That's because you stereotype. Mm -hmm. Our evolutionary ancestors were often called to act fast on partial information from a small sample in novel or risky situations. Under those conditions, the ability to form a better-than-chance prediction is an advantage. Wherever humans live, so do stereotypes. Everyone does it. The powerful use stereotypes to enshrine and perpetuate their power, and the powerless use stereotypes just as much when seeking to defend or rebel against the powerful. So I thought that was really interesting. The article's long, it's really thorough, but everybody uses stereotypes. And I think um, it's a really interesting debate that's happening in the gender conversation because You know, some people might say stereotypes are all nurture, meaning they're completely socially constructed and we should just get rid of all of them. Kind of like what you referenced about boys in dresses, you know. And then others say, well, these are biologically hardwired. And so if we try to change them, we're social engineering or something like that. And I think that the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle. Um, And when it comes to gender dysphoria, it, it kind of makes sense in hindsight, for a person who has felt dysphoric their whole lives, and then they transitioned, if you look back and you think, well, what were the criteria that helped you define your condition or your experience? Of course, they're going to sound like the DSM criteria. But I just think it's really tricky when we apply those criteria kind of prematurely to children who happen to be gender nonconforming, because then we might end up just kind of reinforcing the stereotypes over and over and over. And I I just wonder, there's not a lot of room left for gender nonconformity when we're so overly focused on whether or not you fit the stereotype. Yeah. And you're raising something that's been kind of been niggling at me since the beginning of my gender world, which is, you know, people who are very pro-medicalization of gender They say we're breaking the boundaries of stereotypes. We're breaking the gender norms because boys can have breasts and then they become trans women. And gender critical feminists say we're breaking the stereotypes because we're saying a boy doesn't have to have breasts. He can just behave in a non-stereotypical boyish fashion and he can wear dresses and so we're the ones who are breaking the, the, the kind of the, the gender down, breaking the stereotype down. And so they're both claiming to be mm-hmm. uh, breaking the stereotypes. Both of them are. Both sides are. And you, it's very hard for somebody who's not really reading up, who isn't engaged, who isn't interested enough to be engaged. They just think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great to both sides. Oh, yeah, that's yes. great. Oh, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Because they're both claiming it. It's very like the pro-life and pro-choice they also, you know, they mm-hmm. just kind of, they, they learned their, their, their language. So it's very hard to know what people are saying when they're talking about breaking the, the restrictions on gender. Does breaking the restrictions on gender mean that boys walk around with a boy's name and wear dresses? 
or that boys walk around with a girl's name and say she, her and wear dresses or even further, boys walk around with a girl's name, she, her and medicalise their gender identity so that they're more conforming in a girl's way. I know I'm kind of going my, around in knots here, but this is this is the, no. a big thing in this world. Yes, yes. I mean, you're totally spot on. And I will add another factor. I'm going to queer the conversation, if you don't mind, Stella. <laughs> because what's also, what's also happening is that kids are saying, like, I, I, I know there are lots of females who identify as trans boys and look ostensibly exactly like the quote, air quotes, boring, you know, cis normative girls that you and I were talking about earlier who fit the stereotypes. So they're in eyeliner and they're in dresses and they have long hair and they got lots of makeup on and they're still like, I'm a trans guy and I, you know, don't stereotype me. Guys can wear makeup. So it's such a twisted pretzel like i say this is like a mind pretzel that, that this is kids truly are... queer theory. yes yes to me yes. this is just queer everything queer at all queer at all yes so you know you say that it's non-conforming for a boy to wear a dress well we say it's non-conforming for a girl to wear a dress when she's a boy and it's like, well, she's not, she's, I know, I know. So, and I mean, then there's to things think, like femboys, which are big right. among these teenage yes. girls. It's like, I'm a girl, I, I'm, 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 I identify as a boy. So I'm a, you know, I'm a boy, I'm a trans boy. And now I'm a femboy because actually I'm quite feminine and I enjoy my feminine side. And right. the, the parents who are from a different generation are just like, I'm bamboozled. Yeah, apparently no she's a trans idea. boy, but she's yeah. she's flirting yeah. around with the, like with her makeup and her and her dresses as if she's a really stereotypical girl. And they're like, the kid is like, no, I'm not. I'm not at all stereotypical. I'm breaking all the rules here. Yeah. And, and that's why I say this really becomes it becomes a language game. And it's it's scary when a language game spills over into medical procedures. Right. I mean, I think that's where it gets tricky. And and that's where to, it gets to, tragic because it wouldn't have been great if the 20s were that period where all the kids ran around and played around with the language and played around with concepts and turned into Socrates of gender, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it could have been great. Stella, I think you're giving these theories way, way more credit <laughs> than they deserve. Yeah, maybe actually. <laughs> I withdraw well, that. <laughs> okay, we'll leave it in the podcast so that people can laugh at you with me. But <laughs> um, well, you know, I'm thinking about this this idea of idea of stereotypes, and something that I see happening is that let me, you know, I wrote this down. It's a stereotype that all men have penises, or conversely, it's a stereotype that people with penises are men. And this is exactly what's happening among the radical gender ideology people. Because, I mean, I think sometimes, Stella, when you and I talk about these concepts, we're talking more about, like, the transmedicalist perspective, which is, like, if you have dysphoria, medicalize it. And we're even, you know, we're skeptical about that. We're critical of that. But I think we have to keep in mind there's a whole new cohort of young people and some adults, but mostly younger people, who live under a certain worldview. It is a belief system, that all of these categories 
are imposed on us by an oppressive, dogmatic, rigid, hierarchical system, and that the goal is we just got to tear it all down and queer everything up. And so I think this is exactly why you see important science publications like Nature, uh, the journal, publishing about sex being on a spectrum. We're really starting to see this idea of categories and stereotypes are essentially categories. They're incomplete, but they're categories being uh, demolished for the sake of this gender ideology theory. So there are lots of people who they would look at the DSM and they would throw it away and they'd say, I don't need this. You can't tell me that I have a disorder. I can be a guy even if I don't do anything surgical to my body and you still have to treat me like a man. So there's a lot of iterations of this. You know what you've just said that that's where you can't get away from the stereotype. So there's that, you know, hypothetical person saying you got to treat me like a man. I'm a man, even if I wear my dresses and I'm very feminine because I I declare it because this is a language based um, rebellion as such. And then it's like, yeah, well, what does treat like a man mean? Because now we're going back to stereotypes. It's he him pronouns. I mean, under this new belief system, it's not about you know, talking, locker room talk and drinking a beer. It's about he, him pronouns. That's all it is. I mean, this is all language based. It's all based on words and, you know, perception and how you address people. It's not even about treating me like a man in the old school sense. It's really a different, totally different worldview. And if we were to reduce it, it's two things. It's language based and it's medical based, which feels very inappropriate. Now, I know some people would say that an awful lot of queer theorists would say you don't need to medicalize. And yet an awful lot would. An awful lot of the kids who seem to have kind of ingested queer theory, they presume they're medicalizing. So there, mm-hmm. it feels mm-hmm. like there's a lack of, of um, incongru- the, the feels incongruent. The feels there's a lack of depth because you're saying, sorry, you can be a feminine boy, yeah, I get it. You can wear your dresses, yeah, I get it. And yet you need to get rid of your breasts. What What is that? That's where it feels like there's a mix between language and medicalization. There's, that's where the focus is on gender. And that's where I, I would be very um, feeling like this is half-baked. It's not fully thought out. Because if it was all about language, I'd be with it. I'd get it. Okay, right. We're, we're playing with language. Our rebellion is in language. Our movement is in language. And off we go. But it's not. There's a huge undercurrent of medicalization as well as language. Well, I've heard kids say stuff like along those lines with the added caveat that but in the real world, gender is a system that exists. Therefore, I need to have my breasts removed so that I'm read as male. Because even though I think people with breasts can be male, the rest of the world still operates under this gender binary. And therefore, in order to move through the world as a man or as a male, I need for people to be able to visually identify me that way. So I think there are lots of different ways that people understand and rationalize this. And, you know, just to caveat all of this, when I explain what I see happening with young people's worldview, I'm not endorsing it. I'm just trying to explain what I see. And I think all of this is very dangerous. And I think playing with language is actually very dangerous because when we do that, things totally lose meaning. If you start like referring to an object that used to be known by everybody to be a phone and you start calling it a duck 
and you have phones and ducks both being called ducks, and then you have phones no longer being called phones, and now they're called ducks. I mean, it's a silly example, but I think it's incredibly dangerous to start messing with what words are supposed to mean. And I say that also with the, you know, the other other caveat that I am not I'm not at all someone who will refer to transsexuals as their birth sex. I still think it's completely valid to say this is a transsexual woman or this is a transsexual man. So I'm not um, an an essentialist in that way. But I think we have to maintain some sort of understanding of what that means. And that's why I think, you know, for me personally, if somebody is a transsexual woman, I feel comfortable saying this is a woman because that person has gone to extraordinary lengths to try and to try and create the the identity of a woman physically in in the three-dimensional real world sense so I, I mean I'm not sure if this is a bit of a tangent here but when it comes to how we use these words and whether stereotypes need to be discarded or not I just think we still have to retain some sense of meaning of what these words are supposed to indicate so that we can be on the same page about what we're discussing. What are we talking about? Yeah, because if we can't have a definitive, you know, a duck means, you know, quacks like a duck. If we can't have that, we we, we are destabilized. It's a very insecure place. I remember the George Orwell, I have it up here, 1984, and something like, by controlling the language, Big Brother controls the way that the people think. With a limited vocabulary, the people are limited in how much they can think, as well as what they think about. So mm-hmm. controlling the language controls everything. It re- mm-hmm. I, I really do think it does. That the that if there are words, and I, I personally rage against um, not being allowed to say certain words because of mm-hmm. different um, sensibilities, I just think we can't mess around with people's freedom to speak to speak. And I remember being told, oh, that's that's a that's kind of a right wing fascist thought. And I'm saying, sorry? Like, yeah. I was at some woman's meeting in, in Britain and they wanted to know what hashtag and I says, Oh, it should be free speech of course. And they said, Oh no, that's right wing fascist. Like, free speech. Free speech. It's right wing fascist. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's how you know, that's how polarized we've become. But I really think personally free speech is everything. And controlling the speech is just the most frightening part of of the new way of being. You're so right about free speech. And as a matter of fact, one of the issues with the whole toxic stereotypes thing is that people police each other's speech based on that notion. So if I said, you know, if I said, for example, um, a family came to me with a 10-year-old boy who's very, very camp, very flamboyant, hangs out with a lot of girls, enjoys um, trying on girl clothes and playing with dolls. And I suspect this boy might turn out to be gay. Some people might say, you shouldn't say that because that's a stereotype. Not all feminine boys are gay and not all gay men are feminine. Fair enough. But if you start making people feel as though they can't say those things, can't make those predictions or can't you know, hypothesize, you're really getting in hot water. And it's interesting in the article that I'm going to link to, 
the author poses a great question about, you know, can can it be possible that we behave in certain ways because of the stereotype? It's a bit of a chicken egg question, you know, but in, in the cases of childhood, um, I want to say proto-gay behaviors or tendencies or traits, I think it's imperative that we have the freedom as clinicians to talk about it, to hypothesize about it, to discuss it, to make predictions, and to you know, have conversations about what these traits mean. And I, I completely agree with speech being a necessary thing we have to protect. Because if you can't say it, you can't think it. I need to be able to mm-hmm. say it so that I can think of it. Some, something about my brain needs to talk my way to my thoughts, which is mm-hmm. why I, I'm a great believer in therapy, because I help people talk their way to the thoughts. That you come in and you're talking and you think you're annoyed about your mother. And actually, when you talk around enough, you realize you're furious with your sister. And it's only by rambling around the situation that you, you crystallize. And if there's things you can't say, you're, you're stunting your ability to think. You're literally mm-hmm. putting roadblocks into your thinking. Mm-hmm. And I would say stereotypes, like you said, there's, there's, a, there's an efficiency if you follow me with it, and let's say classically gay. And there is such a thing as a feminine man, and they're beautiful. I'm particularly fond of feminine men. I, heterosexual feminine men I always find very attractive. And, mm. you know, the, so the, there's a very definite type, if you follow me, that, it, that is lovely. But I'm always very, very interested in why, um, why is, is it pre-gay or proto-gay? to be feminine. I've never really figured that bit out at all, if you follow me. But I suppose it's... Well, I want to ask about um, something that we touched on briefly, whether you see this coming up in your um, caseload. Do you see that there are some young kids who are struggling with gender, who are having a hard time with maybe the fact that they do fulfill some stereotypes? You know, uh, like right now, there are lots of discussions of what it means to be, for example, a a cis white male or what it means to be, um, you know, a cis white female, cis white female. Yeah, they're the two biggies. They don't want to be them. (laughs) Yeah, they they don't want to be a bog standard cis white female. That's that's the one I see more than anything. Um, And yeah, they're resisting in, in quite a profound way. They do not want to be that stereotype, which is sad. Can you say more about it? I mean, they don't want to be. They feel that it's it's and that's going back to women are weak. They're silly. They're they're um, flaky and they're they're just pretty little things. And they don't want to be that. They want to be unusual and edgy and decisive and powerful. And in their brains, that means they I would say they've stereotyped being a woman to the point of they feel they can't fit, the, they, can't, they need another box. They need mm-hmm. another stereotype to, to belong to. Mm-hmm. And something about the, the extraordinary emphasis on classification, categorization and performance that we have been very, very consumed with in the last 30 years have made kids, they, they, they seek boxes all the time. They're seeking stereotypes all the time. They're resisting them but they're also seeking them in their new mm. stereotypes. So mm-hmm. I resist this stereotype, but mm-hmm. I want to go over to the other stereotype rather than the gender critical concept, which is no, yet, no stereotypes. <laughs> Break it down. Mm-hmm. It's gone. 
Do you know what I mean? That's the concept, as far as I can gather, from kind of gender critical radical feminism. That's what it is. It's get rid of all of them. And I think a lot of people push back against that because they're like, well, the stereotypes came from somewhere. Mm-hmm. But the girls, the young girls that I meet, they just don't want to be a cis white female. Yeah. Something that comes to my mind is that when we when we frame certain things as toxic, right, it makes it it makes a psychological exploration really challenging. And I'm thinking about the Jungian theory of the shadow, which is all the things that we disallow about ourselves, which can be both positive or negative things. It's not only just, quote, negative uh, traits. But if you say that it's toxic to be a certain type of feminine, you know, performative femininity or, um, you know, make like makeup. I've seen some, you know, radical feminists argue that any kind of beauty standards are toxic. It becomes hard to help a person in therapy accept all of the wholeness of who they are if they happen to be someone who has that preference. And the same is true on the other side. I mean, if you work with a therapist or somebody who's got very rigid ideas of what it means to boy or be a boy or a girl, and you're a young woman who's very masculine, and he, the therapist may not understand that that is just a real part of you. You know, they might think you're reacting to a stereotype or you're going out of your way to buck the stereotype. And I just think all of these All of these things can be true in different individuals. So I just wonder when when certain traits become disallowed in a person's mind, how does that impact whether or not they can be whole, whether or not they can fully access and accept all those parts of themselves? Yeah, I've been around, you know, I don't think I've ever been around feminists who, who wore makeup or who wore stereotypically feminine clothes, maybe revealing clothes, and didn't apologize for it because they were feminist. Do you follow me? They generally make some sort of self-deprecating, oh, I know I'm wearing my makeup, I know the patriarchy. They'll make some sort of reference, which is semi-apologetic, to the fact that they are enjoying their femininity. Mm. And that's a little bit tragic, but that's my experience now. I'm sure listeners can tell me otherwise, but it's my experience that there's a general apologetic tone among feminists about being very, very feminine. Mm. Not always, but very, very commonly. I I wonder if that's true for like the third wave feminists, because I see a very different, like maybe that's true in second wave feminists, but the more liberal feminists, they're all about you know, yeah. slaying in your thong or whatever they say. I don't know what they say. <laughs> These are obviously the feminists I hang around. I don't meet very many third waves. I think they avoid me. <laughs> you're too boring, maybe. You're just a boring lady. <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. There's a whole third wave movement that probably run when they see me. And so I don't see them. But they're they're very different. They've... And they've kind of very much like the queer theory, they've booked it, if you follow me, so that they're saying, I'm being empowered by um, having dancing provocatively for men and, um, you know, having an awful lot of men having sex with an awful lot of men. That's the most empowering thing I can do as a woman. And, you know, of course, I think other people would argue, no, you're, you're falling into the the actual 
um, the disempowering role and they're like, no, no, I'm not. This is my most empowering thing to do. Then yeah. again, we're, we're kind of playing with language here and you're thinking, oh, ah. <laughs> well, uh, I think the third wave feminist ideas and like, if there's like someone who's actually a historian, they could correct me on this. But I think they came from exactly what we're talking about, which is an examination of stereotypes. So let's say the stereotype is that women are less interested in sex than men. Right. And let's say we frame that as harmful and toxic. What do we do? Well, we then have to go to the opposite direction, which is screw that. I'm going to love sex as much as any man. And actually, I'm going to love it more than men. And I'm going to do all these things. Mm, and cool, it's cool like, girls. The, yeah, but the problem is there's a nugget of truth in both. I mean, I do think that all women and probably even all men at some level, all women have felt a little bit vulnerable around sexuality or around being approached for sex by a man. And all women have had moments of being, for lack of a better term, horny and like wanting to engage with sexuality, right? But when you, when you frame everything as an attempt to dispel stereotypes, then your behavior takes on a very kind of revolutionary tone and putting on a thong and dancing provocatively for men becomes supposedly a politically empowering move, which I don't know if that's necessarily true. So I wonder how much of this stuff that we see in liberal feminism is a way to try and buck the stereotype. Yeah, I do think just to, to take you up on that point about the, 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 the having sex and stuff, you know what I mean? Whether you're the, the, the most um, amorous woman in the world, testosterone drives men to seek new mates, seek more, mm. more lovers, if you follow me. Mm. And estrogen, you know, drives us. We might want to have sex, but we, we're not necessarily as driven to have sex. We're definitely not physically made to, to seek sex with lots and lots of different partners. That, that's not our drive. So while we might, might want to have sex a lot of the time, testosterone would actually suggest men want to have sex typically more, just like men are typically faster and they're typically taller and they're typically stronger. Mostly men want to have more sex and mostly men want to have more sex with more people. Um, and I think um, liberal feminism, an awful lot of feminism, uh, one would argue, I would certainly argue, through the, the, the baby out with the bathwater. And so that they, they didn't quite realize, no, we do have biological urges and we do have biological bodies. And actually, the fact that we hold the baby in our bellies and then we breastfeed really does really, really impact the child-mother relationship on a profound level mm -hmm. that can't be replicated. And that needs yeah. to be all our biological. I feel we've become so disembodied. It's like we're treating the body like almost a robot in the last 20 years. It's all language based. It's all you can be whatever you want and take your nose off, and mm -hmm. put your nose back on mm -hmm. and do mm -hmm. this, do that. Do you know what I mean? As mm -hmm. if we're, you know, Mr. Potato or something. And it's not. We're actually um, we're, we're bodies and we're driven by an awful lot of hormones within us that is really shaping our behavior and creating stereotypes and supporting stereotypes. Yeah, good point, Stella. So I guess we should wrap it up at this point. Um, do you have any special plans for the evening? 
Well, uh, I suppose uh, I'm I'm carrying out a very unstereotypical manner role right now because uh, my husband is in there slaving over the hot stove because we've got people <laughs> coming. And I've never, I think we're 20 years together or something like that, and I've never actually cooked for uh, ever. Yeah. No, I, I've cooked for me and him beans and toast and cheese on toast. I'm particularly good at that. But I've, <laughs> <laughs> but I've never cooked when we've had, a, let's say, people over and stuff like that. No, 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 no. That's where Look Henry... at you, Stella. That's so third wave of you. <laughs> I'm a Lib Femme in, disgu- in disguise. Come on, Lib Femmes, be friends with me. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this is a good time to wrap up, I guess. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RIME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash wider lens pod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 